Well, good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Dave Butler from this congregation. Uh, welcome back from your celebrations of Easter, everybody. Uh, in the study of Mark's gospel that our church has been moving through, we're not up to the death and resurrection part quite yet, but we are given a glimpse of it in today's reading. Have you noticed as we've gone through this series how matter-of-fact this gospel is? Mark, or John Mark, as he was also known, doesn't embellish or try to paint a picture. He simply records the events as relayed to him by Peter. Peter is one of the apostles of Jesus with him as he travels. He is an eyewitness to events like the one we are looking at today. It's probably the reason that Mark's gospel doesn't contain anything about Jesus' birth or early life, like the gospels of Matthew and Luke do, because Peter wasn't with Jesus for that part of his life. In our series, we are following Jesus as he preaches and heals throughout the region of Galilee. He has garnered fame and notoriety, and a large crowd follows him now wherever he goes. He has already begun to upset the Jewish leaders by failing to adhere strictly enough in their eyes to the laws and traditions of the Jewish church. He has begun teaching the people through parables, and we heard from Sam Foster a few weeks ago as he unpacked the parable of the sower for us in chapter 4. Also in chapter 4, we heard about Jesus' power over nature when he calmed the storm on the lake. I found it really helpful when Pete Huxley explained the geography of the region to highlight what was facing the disciples in the boat on that day. In chapter 5, Jesus healed the possessed man legion, which Jason Hazel took us through scene by scene to give us a better understanding of the events and their significance. And now Jesus has left the place where he healed legion across the lake, oh, sorry, at the request of the people there, apparently never to return, and sailed across the lake where another large crowd awaits him. People want to see him. They want to hear what he has to say, and they come to seek his help. One of the crowd there that day on the banks of the lake was Jairus, and the account of what happens with Jairus has much to teach us about the way in which we are to be faithful. It also tells us a lot about the compassionate heart of our Saviour and possibly begins our frustration with Peter the Apostle. I can't even imagine what it feels like to be the parent of a child placed on the list for a heart transplant, like the family pictured here. Hoping that the heart so desperately needed to make your child better would come in time. The waiting must be unbearable as you watch your child getting sicker while you hope for a miracle. As heartbreaking as this situation is to consider, I think it provides some insight into the part of Mark's gospel we are looking at today. As an aside, I also wonder if it might inform our understanding of the sacrificial nature of Easter while it is still fresh in our minds. Does it make Easter a bit more personal for you if you consider Jesus dying to provide something vital to you which gives you eternal life? I was struck by the parallels and thought you might be too. 
But that's just something that we'll reflect on later, maybe during your week. This morning, we are looking at Jesus' interaction with Jairus. Jairus is a leader in the synagogue, an important position to hold in Jewish life, a respected man. But I think he is also in much the same situation as a father with a daughter on the heart transplant list. He's been watching his daughter get sicker. Then to hear Jesus was coming to his town gave him some hope, maybe like being put on the list to receive a new heart. For Jairus, Jesus has what he so desperately needs. Jesus, this man that his Jewish counterparts in the synagogue are grumbling about as a blasphemer and a rule breaker. But he believes in the face of this opposition. He's not going to let his pride or standing in their eyes stop him from seeking out Jesus. He made his way through the crowds to get to him. And when he gets close enough, he falls at Jesus' feet to plead with him to help his dying daughter, to lay hands on her so that she might be healed and live. You see, Jairus fully believes in Jesus' ability to heal, believes that he is God. And Jesus' heart goes out to Jairus. He agrees to help him. But I want to emphasise that this is a time-sensitive situation. Surely Jairus wants Jesus to come back to his house right away, as soon as possible. His daughter's life hangs in the balance. But how many other people would have been petitioning Jesus as he hit the shores? Remember why he had to preach from the boat? After, ha- after, Jesus, has agreed, after Jesus has agreed to come with Jairus, The journey back to his house must have been painfully slow. Jesus would have been delayed constantly by people seeking out his help. And we hear of only one, where a woman reaches out to touch his cloak and she is instantly healed. Jesus stops, seeks her out and talks to her, telling her that her faith has healed her, that she can go in peace and is freed from her suffering. I mean, it's wonderful. Jesus has performed another miracle and saved a woman tortured by illness for her entire life. But while this was going on, Jairus must have been beside himself and thinking, hurry up, please. And then the news comes. Men from his friendship group or perhaps his family come to tell him it's too late. His daughter has died. No need to bother Jesus anymore. Think of the reaction that this news would have had on Jairus. This father, in the very process of bringing Jesus to save her, finds out it's too late. How would any of us react here? Are you any chance of holding it together? I would lose it. I would want to rail at Jesus for taking so long, taking too long. But as we read it, it seems like before there is time for the news to sink in and for Jairus to completely crumple, that we again gain some insight into the nature of our saviour, Jesus. He is compassionate to this distraught father and he tries to ease his fears, saying, don't be afraid, just believe. Incredibly, Jairus does. There's no mention here of Jairus giving up and saying not to bother anymore or having to be convinced further. He simply takes Jesus at his word. So they continue on their way back to the house. 
And when they arrive, it is a scene of great sadness. It's a home in the grip of grief. People are crying, wailing. Why all this commotion and wailing? The girl is just asleep, Jesus says. But they laugh at him. Is laugh the right word here? Maybe snigger is a bit more suitable. It's an uncomfortable scene, isn't it? It seems a strange question from Jesus, like he hasn't really read the room or the situation particularly well. We, of course, know in hindsight that Jesus has the situation completely under control, that he has the authority of God and the power to overturn this death. But to those assembled in their pain and their loss, it strikes a discordant tone. Their reaction makes us a bit uncomfortable too, doesn't it? A derisive, dismissive kind of laughter. It's a bit hard to hear about when it's directed towards Jesus. But surely it shows us the humanness of the situation, the helplessness, the anger, the loss that these people are feeling. It makes it all a bit more real for me to hear such a candid human response. It makes Mark's account of the events feel accurate, more authentic, because this part wasn't ignored or glossed over, even though it's a bit jarring. At the house, Jesus invites a few of his disciples in with him. Peter is one of them, which is the reason we have this account of what occurred in the room that day. With Peter and a few other disciples, Jairus and his wife follow Jesus into the room where their daughter lays lifeless. Jesus takes the little girl by the hand and says, Talitha kum. He speaks to her gently in her own dialect and asks her to get up, which she immediately does. We are told that the parents were completely astonished and that Jesus asked for them not to tell anyone and to get her something to eat. Now I have a few issues here. I'm not sure about you. The first is, don't tell anyone. Are you serious? I'm telling everyone if I'm that dad. My daughter, who was so sick that she ended up dying, has just been raised from the dead and healed of her illness. I'm thanking Jesus with all my strength and then running from the room to tell everyone else that's around that my daughter is alive and that Jesus is the reason. Doesn't seem to add up, does it? But after some miracles, Jesus says, tell everyone what has happened. And then in others, he says, don't tell anyone. The commentators on the Gospel of Mark that I've sought some help from seem to think it might be a crowd management strategy. That the added commotion of everyone knowing about such amazing feats would make the crowds grow even further and make it harder to get around. And there's still so many places to visit. I guess that theory makes some kind of sense, but it will be good to know for sure one day. The second part of these final verses in chapter 5 that really strikes me is remember how I mentioned that Mark's gospel is a bit matter-of-fact? This is the bit I was referring to. Overjoyed parents, Jesus says, don't mention this, and then can you get us something to eat? It feels like Mark is not really encapsulating the awesomeness of what has just occurred here. There's no painting of the picture. Where is there more about the parents' reaction or the other disciples or the girl herself? Where is the talk of joy or hysteria or the relief or what happens next? Mark merely writes, Jesus left there and went to his hometown. How would this event be reported on 60 Minutes 
or in your Facebook feed. Not like this, I don't think. But the simple stating of events and lack of embellishment forces us to consider the importance of the event that has just occurred, rather than focus on everyone's reaction to it. Why is it important? It's God through Jesus demonstrating power over death. It's odd to say, but it shows the people, his disciples in particular, and also us, that God has form in this area before he raises Jesus from the dead. It is showing Peter and the disciples that it is possible and that when Jesus tells them of his fate and his eventual resurrection, he can be believed because of days like today. In our second reading, remember also that we are being told that God will raise his people from the dead to join him in heaven. That's us. We can believe it. We have read the evidence that he can do it time and time again. Let's take a quick look at Peter's journey after this momentous occasion through the rest of Mark's gospel. I recognise that's pretty small. Don't worry, I'm going to read it to you anyway. So in Mark 5.42, what we've just had is that immediately the girl stood up. Peter saw this miracle happen. He saw Jesus' power over death. In Mark 8.31, he, Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise. So Jesus had told Peter directly that he would rise from the dead. And again, he tells him in Mark 10, we're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. But three days later, he will rise. And in case Peter has reason to doubt the word of Jesus, we hear of another event in Mark 14.30. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others did the same. And of course, in Mark 14.72, it gets confirmed. Immediately before the rooster crowed the second time, then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me. And he broke down and he wept. Peter should know by now that what Jesus says will happen, does. In Mark 16.6, after Jesus has been resurrected, he appears to the two Marys. And he says, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Have you ever noticed that and Peter bit before? I hadn't. Speaking directly to Peter. And does he believe the Marys? In Mark 16, 14, we find out. 
Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. What is Peter's problem? So much evidence and still he doesn't believe. Reading this, I am so exasperated by Peter. Given what he knows about Jesus, what he has seen him do, how is he so slow to believe what Jesus has told him? And then it sinks in for me a little bit. How am I any different? A bit like when Sam pointed out a few weeks ago that we all behave a bit like the seed which fell in the rocky places or the seed that fell among the thorns from time to time. In the same way, aren't we all more like Peter than we would care to admit? Given all that we know about Jesus, given what we know he has already done, given what we are told is to come, like in the readings from 1 Thessalonians, why do we doubt it? We shouldn't. We should instead consider the character of the father we heard about today and try to emulate him. Jairus was steadfast in impossible circumstances, seeking Jesus and trusting him, never doubting. Let's pray that God will help us to be like this as well. Will you pray with me? Lord, we give you thanks that you are a compassionate God. Thank you for revealing how you care for people through your word and through Jesus. Thank you that you have demonstrated your power over death so many times to us. Help us to stand firm in our belief of being raised and joining you for eternity. Help us to have faith like that of Jairus. Amen.